0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not silent. You have spoken to us in your word and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Now give us ears to hear what you might have to say to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You can be seated. In our Gospel reading, Jesus is confronted by a group of people, the Sadducees, who Luke tells us in verse 27, deny that there is a resurrection resurrection of the body. And of course, the resurrection of the body is a central tenet of the Christian faith. I thought before we get into this passage, I would just give a review of the basic doctrine of the Christian faith, what mainstream Christians have always held about the afterlife and about resurrection. So just a little sketch here. Uh, if this raises deep philosophical questions for you about the nature of the soul and the relationship between the body and the soul, I'll be happy to point you to Mike Jorgensen. <laughs> and if he can't answer the question, to Dr. Mike Mclyman afterwards. So this is just a sketch It's going to raise maybe some questions for you all, but, but here goes. Mainstream Christians have always held that after death, we are immediately in the presence of God in the presence of the Lord. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the penitent thief on the cross, Luke 23.43, today you will be with me in paradise. After your death, today, you will be with me in paradise. So again, mainstream Christians have always held that, when we die, we are immediately in the presence of the Lord. But this life, this life after, immediately after death, is an intermediate state. Okay? It's a temporary state. It's a temporary form of existence. Because Christians have always held, unlike some Greek philosophy, that the body is good, God is the creator of the body, and human beings are a composite of body and soul. So when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead, God will resurrect the bodies of all who have died. Life after death ultimately is not a matter of the immortality of the soul, but of this resurrection. This is the great hope. Those who have died in Christ will be raised to life with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. Those who died apart from Christ will also be raised, will be resurrected bodily, but they will enter into an eternity separated from the presence of God. Now, that's the mainstream Christian teaching. Again, probably lots of questions are raised, and there's more that we can say about it. But there have always been skeptics of this belief in the resurrection of the body. We see it here in our Gospel reading. It goes back to Jesus' day. People rejected the idea of bodily resurrection. And there are people, of course, today who reject it, the materialists. Thoroughgoing materialists who say that we're nothing more than an accidental collection of matter and that when our body dies, the matter dies and we're extinguished into oblivion. There's nothing. That's the materialist view, which, by the way, has a lot of um, presuppositions that can't be proved, right? It's based on presuppositions, philosophical ideas that can't be proved. But there are these other views, there's other religious views about what happens when a person dies. Um, for example, belief in the reincarnation uh, from Eastern religion, which is making some inroads into our culture today. There are people who believe that when you die, uh, you reappear in the, in, in the next life, in a different form of life. You come back to earth in another form of life. And then there are many people who just, just prefer not to think about it at all and hope for the best. You know, it's, it's like Woody Allen who said, I don't fear death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. He's kind of the great voice for that sort of neurosis. So there's a great deal of skepticism and confusion and false ideas and fear around this issue of the afterlife. And that can seep into the church. So we need to always go back to the clear teaching of Scripture. We always need to go back words of Christ for our foundation. And that's what we find here in Luke 20. Some clear teaching that Jesus gives us about the resurrection of the body. The Sadducees come to Jesus with a question and of course they're not really wanting his answer. They want to make Jesus's position look ridiculous. So they this this well-constructed question that's really designed to undermine his credibility and his authority as a religious teacher. They are threatened by Jesus and the movement that's happening that's occurring around Jesus. And the question in a nutshell is this, if a woman has had seven husbands, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? According to Old Testament law, a man should marry his brother's widow if she doesn't have any children, if she doesn't have an heir. And the reason for that is that the property can stay in the family to protect the family inheritance. So they draw on that, and they, and they, and they come up with a scenario. And Jesus, in his response to this question, makes two major points about bodily resurrection. First, it's about the nature. He he teaches us something about the nature of the resurrected life. And then he says something about the nature of our relationship with God. Again, all pointing to the truth of the resurrection. So let's look at what he says about the nature of the resurrected life. You see, the Sadducees assumed that resurrected life will be um, a lot like life on earth. It will be kind of a continuation of what happens on earth, but it will be just an eternal continuation. And so they assume that there will be marriage in heaven. But the biblical teaching is that resurrection is not just continuation of life as it is now. Resurrection is transformation. Transformation. There will be some continuity, but there's going to be something new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's about newness. It's about new life. So Jesus is correcting their assumption here, and he says in this new form of life, in the age of resurrection, marriage will not be necessary. Careful how you respond to that if you're married. Some people may not be so unhappy to hear that, but I think most of us who are married would say that marriage is a great source of comfort and joy in our life. Uh, perhaps we would agree with Winston Churchill. Churchill was at a banquet in London, and people asked at this banquet, uh, if you could come back and be anybody other than you, who would you come back as? And this was um, as they went around the table at this banquet. Everybody was wanting to see what Churchill would say, of course, and he was the last one to give his answer. And uh, when it finally came to be his turn, he rose and he took his wife's hand and he said, if I could be anybody other than me, I would like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. (laughs) He scored some points there. (laughs) Don't we wish we could all be so clever? But I think anybody who has a good marriage can, can relate to that sentiment. But Jesus says that in marriage there is, or in, in heaven, there will be no marriage. Why is that? What's the logic here? Um, he says in verse 34 The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection you see his argument one of the God's purposes for marriage is procreation the purpose of procreation is to propagate the human species the human race to continue the family line but that's not going to be necessary because people are not going to die so the logic is marriage doesn't exist in heaven because procreation doesn't exist in heaven procreation doesn't exist in heaven because death doesn't exist in heaven There'll be no need for procreation. So that's that's part of the, the logic here. But I think there's something else we can say about why marriage isn't necessary in heaven. And we can broaden the biblical teaching here for a minute. At the heart of marriage, of course, is this desire to be loved. Right? And we all long for love. We long for unconditional love. We long to know someone intimately and deeply and to be known by them, intimately and deeply. And God designed marriage to to reflect something of that love that will ultimately be fulfilled in heaven. See, our desire to be loved unconditionally with a pure love will be fulfilled in heaven in the presence of God, that deep longing of the. Now, again, God desired marriage to reflect something of that, of the relationship of love that he has with his people. Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about marriage, he talks about this is a great mystery. I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and his church. So there's this mysterious reflection in marriage of the love that God has for his people that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5. But, as we all know in married life, it's not pure. It's not always unconditional. It's a struggle sometimes to love that way. Marital love is to reflect God's love, but it's not the pure love of God. That awaits us in heaven. There's an ebb and flow. As, you know, I've been married 15 years. Some of you have been married much longer than that, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There's this ebb and flow in marriage, there's seasons of marriage. Josie told me the other day, she said, you know, it's been a while since we've had a good fight. You know, she's just waiting for the good fight to happen. It's, it's the Irish-Italian mix in her, I guess. She's feisty. So we know that's coming down the line. Something to look forward to. But that's, that's marital life, right? We're sinners. And so at the heart of marriage, there has to be forgiveness and confession and repentance and a willingness to show mercy to one another, to show kindness. And in that way, reflect something of the love of God. But it's it's never perfect. And so that's a caution for married people. We can make marriage into an idol. We can make our spouse into an idol. We can look at them and try to find all of our fulfillment and our hope and longing in them, and that's not fair because human beings are not designed for that. That is more than they can bear, you see. And that's turning a person into an idol. Our ultimate fulfillment should be in a relationship. With God and that's what's going to happen in heaven so that's a caution for married people I think it's a comfort for single people and for those who are lonely and for those who are lonely in marriage and for those who are in an unhappy marriage the longing that you have to be loved to be fulfilled to be known and to know someone else intimately that longing ultimately will be fulfilled in heaven I don't think that those of us who are married in this life in heaven will be gazing at one another so much as that we'll be gazing together at the beauty and the glory of God. And what will bind us all together in heaven is the love of God that we will be sharing together. It's going to be a great feast. It's going to be a party. And all the the love and the joy that we experience now is just a little reflection of that. So Jesus is correcting their understanding about the nature of the Resurrected life. It's, it's going to be, there's going to be a transformation that we can't even imagine that's going to take place in the age of the resurrection. And then he gives a positive argument for the resurrection that, that has to do with our na- the nature of our relationship with God. Look at verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. That's significant. He's talking to Sadducees because Sadducees rejected. Uh, much of the Old Testament, only the books of Moses they consider to be authoritative. So he's meeting them on their own terms. Those who deny the resurrection on their own terms, he says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush when he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. When Moses went over to the burning bush in the wilderness, God called to him from the bush, and he said, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob and Isaac. He doesn't use the past tense to speak about his relationship with the great patriarchs, because that relationship isn't over, because they live, and he is the living God. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. Even though they are dead, yet they live to God. And the Sadducees were silenced by Jesus' argument. The point is, and the great hope that we have, is that our relationship with God in this life does not end in the next life. He is the Lord of life. He is the giver of life, life eternal. And so our experience of God here, however limited, is a foretaste of the glory of God. Of the experience of God in heaven when we experience the presence of God in our life maybe through prayer when we experience the presence of God maybe at Holy Communion when we experience the presence of God through the acts of love that we receive from other people when we experience something of the grandeur the majesty of God and the beauty of nature These things are not meaningless. They're not blips in our neurological pathways. They're real, and they're a foretaste of heaven. They're signals of transcendence. They're appetizers of a heavenly feast. So Paul says in Romans 8 that the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to call God Abba, Father, That enables us to have this deep relationship with God now is a foretaste of our relationship with God in heaven as we eagerly await the redemption of our body and the glory that is to be revealed (coughs) in us. The good news is that our relationship with God continues even after death. God loves us. God wants to be with Existence forever. Do we believe that? Is that good news? It's good news. It's the only hope we have in the face of death. So we can live in that hope without fear. And we believe this because Jesus, the risen Lord, teaches it. Not because science or math can prove it one way or the other, but because our Lord, the risen Christ, teaches us. We stand on His authority. I tell you, it makes a huge difference. A couple of days ago, uh, Wanda and I were with Carolyn, niece, who's dying of cancer. And we were there with her family, her, her, son, her, her son, her two daughters, with their spouses, with, with Howard. And we surrounded her bed and we held her hand and we prayed. And we prayed extemporaneously, and we prayed prayers from the prayer book, and we prayed this prayer. Almighty God, look on this, your servant, lying in great weakness. Comfort her with the promise of life everlasting, given in the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There was a lot of sadness in that room. There was grief, but there was hope only because... Of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He taught the resurrection. He demonstrated on the third day. The resurrection. And he gives us hope. As we turn to him in faith. Amen. Amen. Let us pray.